Before we begin, I want to read through Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. If you want to turn there, you can follow along. If you want to, I'd encourage you as well, if you want to, just sit back, listen. I want you to hear God's word this morning and try to hear it with fresh ears and an open mind, an open heart, right? To hear what God might have for you. Uh, As I'm reading through this, if you can do two things at once, if you can listen, but also be praying for unction, right? Pray that God's word would become like bullets of conviction headed straight for you, right? You don't want to miss it. You don't. If there's something God has for you, you don't want to walk out of here today and have missed it, okay? So, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22 says this, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, uncircumcision but what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father." So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I just want to pray one last time before we jump in and try to to dig into this portion of your word and try to understand it. God, we pray that you would uh, be absolutely uh, the, the core central idea behind all that we do today. Lord, help us not to miss Christ in the middle of all of this. Lord, we pray for your spirit, your spirit that is full of power and might, Lord, to be in our hearts. Lord, we pray for unction, God. We pray that the preaching of the Word might be filled with the power of the Spirit and might make it past our dull ears into our heart, Lord. I pray that there would not be one soul who walks out of this room today unchanged, but, Lord, that we would all hear Your Word and know what it means and understand what it means for us today. In Your name I pray. Amen. All right, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 and what was the word that I had for you last week? What was the, we, we looked at the same section. What was the, the main core theme? Where did we jump right into and say, this is something we can't miss? Anybody remember? Remember, right? It was remember. Now do you remember? Right? Remember. And we were supposed to remember some basic things. First of all, you, and I don't think there's anyone here in here that's a Jew, you're Gentiles. And so we could take this just the way the Ephesians took it as the Greeks, Right? As Gentiles, you. He says, remember, you were Gentiles. At one time, here's what was true about you as a Gentile. You were separate from Christ, which means you had no Messiah. Right? 
You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. In other words, you were excluded from citizenship in God's people. You were strangers to the covenants. In other words, you were a foreigner. All those promises of God, you look in the Bible, you read all those promises that God gives to His people. You, that was, you were excluded from that. You were a foreigner to all those promises if it wasn't for Christ. Which means you were, there was no hope for you and you were absolutely without God in this world. But now Christ has changed all that. But it's important to remember that that's how it was. Before Christ, God's people were Israel. Now, before I jump into this, I want to share with you a word that plays into everything that we're going to talk about. Okay? There's, a, there's a word that we have to understand this word if we're going to really understand what this passage is about because it's, it's part of it. Okay? The word is this. Ethnocentrism. It's a big word for you. Okay? You've got to chew on this one for a little while. Ethnocentrism. Ethnocentrism, as I have the definition up there, is the belief that one's own ethnic group should be treated as superior or privileged. Now, it's important to understand the two sides of ethnocentrism that are going on in this passage. On one hand, the Greeks were, and we know this through history, the Greeks were very ethnocentric, right? Greeks had a rich heritage of things leading up to this point. When they would have read this, I mean, take think about what Paul's saying from, from their point of view as a, as a Greek. They have this rich heritage of their own. Most of the dominant religion in that area was, was stemmed from Greek beliefs that had filtered into the Roman beliefs, right? The common language in, the, in the, that whole uh, empire was Greek, right? Koine Greek, the common Greek. And so here you have this, the, the, I mean, this is, the, this is the Greeks. And so here you have Paul, a Jew, say, hey, remember, you were at one time outside of what God had for you. And the only reason why you're in and have the opportunity for the gospel is because of Jesus Christ. Right? You're not in because you're a Greek. You're in because of Jesus. The Jews at the same time were very ethnocentric in some ways because of their own misunderstandings of Scripture. Like, for example, in Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9, the Bible actually tells how God tells the Israelites, He says, of all the nations, I've picked you. Right? Now that should have led to some serious humility on part of the Jews, shouldn't it? You know, and there were certain people uh, amongst the Jews that when God chose them for different tasks, like David, when David recognized his chosen status, said, Who am I? Or Moses, why me? Right? I'm nothing. I mean, being picked out by God, in fact, the Jews were the least of all the nations, and yet God chose them. And so it should have led to humility, but instead it led to a sense of pride in their hearts. Before we get into Ephesians, I want to share just a couple passages with you. When Jesus first entered into ministry, okay? The first one comes from Luke chapter 4, uh, verses 16 through 30. You don't have to turn there. I'm not going to read everything, but in fact, I'm going to put some of the passages up here for you. But I want to share this story with you. If you want to turn there, you can. I'm going to share the story. This is a story of Jesus back in his hometown, Nazareth, and he's actually in Capernaum. He's up in this area. Everybody knows him, right? Jesus goes to the local synagogue, and he reads from the, a scroll, Isaiah, and it's talking about the Messiah. And, and Jesus says, that's me. 
says, I'm here today. I'm going to fulfill all of this in me. And the people don't. They, in fact, they, they seem, they're okay with that. You're the Messiah. All right. In fact, verse 22 says this. Says and all the and all spoke well of him and marvelled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. So he reads Isaiah, and they go, they mar- they're marveling with each other. I don't know how to marvel, but that's what they were doing. They were marveling. Look at the grace. See the gracious words that are coming out of his mouth, and they're excited. And then Jesus responds by saying this. He says, "Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown." In other words, what he's saying right now, get ready for this. He's saying, you're speaking well of me now because you have some ideas about what the Messiah is like, right? But no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Listen to what he says next. Because now, right now, they're still pretty happy with him, but yet he says no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. doesn't make sense until you read what he says next. Verses 25 through 26, he says this. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. In other words, what he's saying is this. There were many widows in Israel, but God blessed a foreigner. Right? And then he goes on, verse 27. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Now they seemed happy with him claiming to be the Messiah, but all of a sudden he starts talking about how, what, what his kingdom, what God's kingdom, what this Messiah is going to be like, and he starts talking about stories in the Old Testament where God skipped over Israel and blessed a foreigner. How do you think they're going to respond? See, if you understand ethnocentrism, you might have a guess how they respond. Let's see what they did. Verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. I mean, they were just burning up on the inside. What? They're not just angry. They take it a step further. And they rose up. Can you imagine somebody saying something so, makes you so angry you actually get out of your seat? Can you imagine me saying something like this? that made you so angry you'd actually get out of your seat and do what these people did? Right? They rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their, their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. They were ready to kill him. They were okay with him saying, I'm the Messiah, I'm going to fulfill the Bible. But then all he does is start talking about how God has skipped over some Israelites and blessed some foreigners and they, they, they're, they're going to kill him. And they tried to. Right? Why? Because the Jews were very ethnocentric. They, they, they looked at themselves as God's people. And instead of that building humility in them and wanting to share God's grace, became pride in their hearts. Listen to this other one from Luke 7. Luke 7, another story of Jesus. This story is also in the book of Matthew. Uh, once again, I'm not going to read the whole thing. Let me skip most of it here. But there's a Roman centurion, a Roman. The people who were ruling over the Jews, that the Jews hated these Romans, Right? These Romans had come into their land, had conquered them. They were being ruled by them, right? And this Roman centurion comes to Jesus, and basically he asks for healing for his son. And, 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 and Jesus is, the Roman centurion, in, in, a, in an act of humility, says, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. But I, I understand your power, Jesus. If it's anything like my authority I have as a, a centurion, you could probably just say to do it, and it'll happen. 
Luke 7.10, one of the few times that you see Jesus marveling at something, Jesus, it says, marvels at his faith. And then he says this. He says, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you many... Now, ready? And then he shifts the conversation away from faith into something different. Truly I tell you, he says, I, I tell you many will come from east and west. Now think about where Israel's at, right? From the east and the west. All, all these other countries, these foreign countries. And recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And then he takes it a step further. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. See, there's something that needs to be understood about Jesus' ministry on this earth. As he came, see, there was a mystery that had been hidden for the ages past. And it's that when Christ would come that He would open up the doors to all in the world to be saved through Him and what He did on the cross. Consider Ephesians chapter 3 right ahead of where we're at. Ephesians 3 verses 4 through 6. Uh, I believe I have this one up here for you to look at. Uh, Ephesians 3 verses 4 through 6 says this. When you read this, and this is Paul speaking, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. See, there was a mystery associated with Christ, what He was going to do. Right, uh, You can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And he says this, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is the mystery that was hidden for the ages past, that, that Gentiles will be welcomed in as fellow heirs with the Jews. Right? In other words, you might say this way, Christ came to end ethnocentrism, and He paid for this kind of peace through His blood. Now, I'll explain that statement. Let's now get back into Ephesians chapter 2 with those thoughts in our mind, some of these things that Jesus said, and, and the mystery of who Christ is. And we're going to go back to verse 13. Remember, you were Gentiles, but now Christ. Verse 13 says this, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So in other words, you who are far off have been brought near. The far off, that far off right there means this. It means you were excluded. Far off didn't just mean you were at a great distance. It actually means you were excluded from being part of this relationship with God. You were away from God. And then it says, then you were brought near, right? In other words, brought into relationship. You were excluded from this. Now you've been brought near. And notice this important aspect. How did it happen? By the blood of Christ. Christ paid for this sort of, uh, of bringing in of you people, right? And me, as Gentiles, Christ paid for that to happen by His own blood. We should be taking this seriously, shouldn't we? The reason why you are brought in to being part of God's kingdom is by the blood of Christ. Okay? Christ ended ethnocentrism by His own blood. He ended this. In other words, there's going to be a new people, and it's not going to be because of their nationality. It's not going to be because of their race. It's not going to be because of their ethnicity. 
Instead, it's because of faith in Christ. That's the unifying aspect. Listen to verse 14. He digs a little bit deeper into this. It says, For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Notice it says He's our peace. And we love that little phrase in the middle of this whole section. But notice what he's talking about. Who has made us both. Who's the both? Is it not the Jews and the Gentiles? He's made us both, right, uh, into one. And so he's made us both one. And how did he do this by, right? He's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh. One there, again, talking about in his flesh. But he did this on the cross, the dividing wall of hostility. Now, that, that dividing wall of hostility there at the end, uh, some people think this is referring to there was a, an actual physical wall that kept the Gentiles separate from the Jews in the temple, right? And they were kept on the outside. And so some people think Paul is kind of alluding to that. But regardless, right, the hostility has been defeated. And Christ paid for it by His own blood. Hostile relations. Christ suffered to... Uh, destroy the hostility between these races. He digs a little bit deeper. Verse 15. Verse 15 says this. How did he do it? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Now, the word abolishing means to render unemployed. In other words, now there's a lot we could talk about in this particular verse. We actually we spent some time on this verse when we were going through the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus came and said that he didn't come to destroy the law. But here he says he abolished the law, and it's a different word. Uh, but what Paul is saying in this case is that Paul, or, or, I'm sorry, Christ rendered the law useless, unemployed for saving people. In other words, nobody can get saved by doing what's right and being a good person is what that means. People don't get to heaven because they've been good. It never worked anyway. The law was pointless at that anyway. The law was never able to make anybody right with God because nobody's righteous. Not one. Everybody's broken the law. And so Christ renders it unemployed. Right? And so now it's about faith. And notice that he says when he did this, he did this so that he might, make, he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. This peace isn't primarily talking about peace with God, though that's part of it. It's also talking about peace with each other. Right? Destroying this hostility that's going on amongst Jews and Gentiles on both sides. It's been destroyed, and what did it was the blood of Christ. There's a drawing people together through faith instead of through nationality. I'm going to dig just a little bit deeper. Verse 16. Right? It says this, verse 16. And might reconcile us both to God. There's that both again. Both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He's basically saying some of the th- same things, just reiterating and making it more powerful. Right? That reconcile. He might reconcile. He's talking about reconciling two opposing parties. There's a reconciliation that we need with God, and there's also reconciliation with each other. And we know that because it says reconcile us both to God. So the reconciliation happens in God. In one body is a referring to the church. Right? The church is the body of Christ. And what did he do? Right? Through the cross, he is killing the hostility. Do you see what he's saying again and again? Before I go any further, I would like to make just a few points out of this. 
Okay? To understand these points, I'm going to give, put this word up here. Racism. Racism, we define racism this way. Racism is the belief or the practice, whether it's just inside your head or acted out. It's the belief or practice that distinguishes, right? Distinguishes or values one race over another. That's what racism is. Now, in Christ, he's making a new people of God. And they're not distinguished by race or nationality. They're distinguished by faith in Christ. But I don't want you to miss this. In fact, if you don't catch anything else, I want you to catch this. The sin of racism is that what makes it sin is its opposition to what Christ accomplished on the cross. Do you understand that? I mean, we could talk about one of the problems with racism in that everybody was created in God's image. But I don't want you to miss this. This passage says clearly that Christ came to destroy the hostility between races, in this case the Jews and the Gentiles. He came to destroy that, to obliterate it, and He paid for it by His own blood. The reason why racism is sin is not just because all men were created in the image of God, but because Christ died to defeat it. And when you walk in the direction of being racist in any way, whether it's in belief or in practice, you are standing in opposition, direct opposition, to what Jesus Christ came and sought to accomplish on the cross. Do you understand that? I say this for our own sake. You do not want to stand in opposition to what Jesus Christ is seeking to accomplish through his own death. You don't want to be in that place of opposition. Christ came to destroy this. Racism in any way should be offensive to you because you know that someone you love dearly died to stop it. And that person is Jesus Christ. You should be offended by racism of any shape or form because you know someone you love dearly, Christ, who died for you, also died to stop that. And to walk down those paths in any way is an offense to Jesus Christ. And it should be offensive to you if you love Christ. Number two, we can also draw from this this. One of the greatest displays of the gospel is that Christians is that Christianity is not about nationality or race, but is about faith in Christ. Nothing displays the gospel better than that. That it supersedes race, it supersedes nations, it goes beyond any borders, that there's a new people of God and they're identified by faith in Christ and not by their nationality. We're not defined as Christians by our preferences and our likes and just what we, how we act, like our certain styles. We're actually defined by faith in Christ. And that blows away the, what? the dividing wall of hostility. It breaks down barriers between these races. And it should be doing that as well today, which means I can jump right to a third point. The church should 
be a demonstration of this aspect of the gospel. If there's any place on the planet, the church should be a demonstration of how God came in Christ to destroy these dividing walls of hostility between races. If there's any place that should be a demonstration of that, it should be within the church. The one body, the one new man that's referred to are both allusions to the church. If we consider the very end of that passage, verses 19 through 22, says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens. Fellow citizens is a great word. It's a together in, in, in our citizenship, right? We're fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. Goes on to say, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In other words, God is bringing us together, joining us together in his church. And Christ died to accomplish this. If you have thought in your heart, or said out loud that the best thing would be that black churches could minister to black people, then you are dead wrong. The best thing is what Paul is talking about. A church that's being joined together. In many ways, it's already being done. If you go throughout this, the, the, the world, in fact, uh, there, there are more Chinese Christians today than there are white Christians today. In many ways, God is doing this, and God will do this, and Christ will do this. But the reality is that one of the... Here we are here in America. The melting pot of the world. No place on the planet can you find so, such a variety. And yet, in this nation that was supposedly built on Christian principles, you, see, you don't see the church demonstrating this aspect of the gospel. Now, what I'm not going to do right now is talk about why that is. And in fact, we can't really do that because, frankly, it's a very complex issue. I don't think, in fact, I think it would be, if I might use a harsh word here, it might be dumb to try to narrow this down to, well, it's like this because of, this is a complex issue that would deserve serious thought to, to even seek to understand why it's like this. My point today is not going to be, here's why it is how it is. My point today is to say, it's like this, but it does not demonstrate what Christ sought to accomplish on the cross and that he paid to do with his own blood. And so my applications today to this might seem a little weird, a little strange. The applications of taking this with us might seem a little odd. But let me put the first one up there for you and see what you think about this. Number one is this. Do you long for this? In, in the book of Revelation, it talks about how one day there's going to be this gathering. Every tribe, every nation, from the whole planet, throughout time, throughout history, together. And we're going to be praising God together. I long for that. But more importantly, I long for that 
today. I believe absolutely that church should be a, a representation of what God will do one day in heaven. Do you long for this? You know, one of my frustrations in thinking about this is that as I long for it, I'm, I'm stumped. I can't make it happen. But before I even go down, like what could we actually do to, to try to, to see this part of the gospel message worked out in our church? The question I have to, we have to ask first is this. Do you even want this? Do, do you sit there and, 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 and I mean, we, we live, forget the rest of America for a minute, we live here in Danville that is racially very diverse. Our churches should be a demonstration of how that can be joined together, but it's not. It's not all our fault. But we shouldn't be having this. And my question is simply this, do you long for this? Do you, do you drive through Danville and think to yourself, I want that kind of church, Lord. I want to see you do these kinds of things. I want to know how can I make any kind of connection, right? How can I how can I bring this together in one way? How can I have this fellow citizens kind of thing that you're talking about with with all of your people, God? How can we bring this together? How can we do this? Do you sit there and just say, oh, I long for this? Which leads me to my second application: is this. How are you moved? And what I mean by that is this. And I'll just be real specific. When you drive up and you stop and you, you look over, and if I'm just going to be totally blunt with you, say you look over and you see a couple of black kids, right? And their pants are hanging down to here. And there's a certain way that they look and they're acting. Are you moved? There's two possibilities, I think, of ways that you can be moved if you're moved at all. Some are moved by disgust. Right? The lip begins to curl. Or are instead, are you moved by compassion? Do you sit there and think, Lord, how in the world could I bridge that divide, that, that wall of hostility that you died on the cross to destroy? How in the world could I ever make a connection? I want to. I wish I could get out and just have a conversation with them about Jesus. Maybe they're Christians. Maybe we have the same spirit at work in that person that's in work in you, and you, there could be a great connection that we could share. But are you moved in that direction? Or instead, it, it amazes me how many people that, that can sit there and, you know. I, you know, one of the things I'll look at, there's a, there's a, a huge movement in, in black churches today to really grasp a hold of the Word of God and go those directions. But let, let me just share it. Let me just say, I'm going to say something right now, right? Some of you, if I, I'm just going to say this, and you're going to, you're going to be disgusted by it. Some of these young black men are, are developing things to try to reach out into their neighborhoods. And they're, they're writing deeply eloquent Words to try to reach out. And it's in the form of Christian rap. Some of you hear that and you go, oh. 
What bothers me is that some of you are more bothered by the fact that a kid might have his pants down low than the fact that you don't even pick up your Bible and read it on a regular basis. And you're bothered by things that people do, and it's not because you were reading the Bible and you go, the Bible says this, and oh, Lord, I'm concerned. You're just bothered by it because it's not your style and you don't like it. But you're unwilling to to, to open up God's Word and read it and to to do this and to, to delve yourself into it. And all you can think of is when you see people that are not like you is to just be bothered by it and disturbed by it. Are you moved with compassion? When you think about Fair Oaks in our town, when you think about it, do you think about it as mission field? Lord, I wish that I had some way to get into Fair Oaks and be a part of that and and preach your gospel there. Or do you just think, I wish the whole thing would go somewhere else? How are you moved? I would encourage you. Anybody can do this, by the way. You just fill out some paperwork and you can do a ride along with a police officer. Take a ride through Fair Oaks about 11 o'clock at night. Are you moved by compassion? Are you moved because Jesus came to this earth and according to Ephesians, died on the cross, shed his blood to tear down the walls of hostility between races? Are you moved by compassion when you see people or are you bothered and disgusted? What moves you? In what direction are you moved? Which brings me to my final point of application. Because as I think about this and I think about am I moved, many times I'm so moved and I say, Lord, and it seems like an insurmountable problem. I, I have no idea how we could ever do anything in this direction. How could we do this? How could we be a part of what Christ did on the cross in this way? How could our church demonstrate the gospel this way? I just think about it. It seems so insurmountable. And so my final question is this. Do you believe in the power of the gospel? Christ came and died on the cross to destroy the dividing wall of hostility. And he, by his gospel, is, is building up a people for himself. He's doing this. The question is, do you believe in that kind of power? Do you believe in that? Do you believe the gospel has the ability to break down those dividing wall of hostility and do those things? Do you believe that? Which means I need to go back to the first question and say, do you even want it? Do you long for a racially diverse church? Do you long for what it could mean for you? How you maybe you might have to change in order to be a part of that. Do you long for those things? And do you want those things? Some of us today might have the need to repent. Some of you in this room today are racist and you know it. You look down on black people. You wish you didn't have to deal with them. And you think things like that. And you say things like that. And I'm telling you today, you need to repent. Because you have stood in opposition to what Christ sought to accomplish on his cross. You don't need to just repent in a small way. You need to repent in a big way. You need to pray that the rest of your life 
you might find any way possible to live in the exact opposite of how you've been. Not just, I'm okay with black people, but Lord, I pray that you would fill my life with racially diverse people. Give me opportunity after opportunity to love and show Christ's love to as many different kinds of people as possible, please. Because I've been this way for too long. Lord, I pray that you would help me to repent and be totally different. So some of you need to repent and pray that God will change you in the depths of your spirit to be a different person than what you were. I'm going to end with that. If we could start there. Having a church that is full of people that doesn't have a drop of racism in us. But instead desperately is longing for God to make this church into one that is racially diverse. Because we love Jesus so much that we want to see His gospel portrayed in this church to the biggest possible way. We're willing to do anything to see that happen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I want to begin this prayer by thanking you so much, Lord, that you came to this earth, that you died on the cross, and you did that to reconcile us as Gentiles to you. Lord, why us? I don't know. Lord, why would you do that? I don't know. But Lord, you did that. You came and you died on the cross. You shed your blood for, for us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to repent Lord, if we see others and we don't long for the same thing for them, or Lord, worse, if we think that maybe we're better or more privileged, Lord, I pray that you'd help this church to repent and to seek your face and to seek your gospel and to long to see your gospel played out in our lives, in our church. Lord, I pray that you would change this church into one that is going to demonstrate your gospel. Lord, I don't know how in the world that could ever happen. But I believe in the power of your gospel. And I pray that you would work in us and do what is necessary to make that happen. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.